This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll take a few moments for silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary. And then, we'll, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to gather together as believers to study your word this morning. We thank you for the freedom of our nation. We thank you for our president. We thank you for uh, his leadership during this time of, of national, cri- national crisis. We pray that you would continue to guide and direct him. We continue to pray for his advisors, for leaders in Congress, for military leaders, for those who are out on the front lines, either in terms of domestic security or those who are in in the military overseas, we pray that you would watch over them, give them wisdom, give them the proper intelligence and information they need to make wise decisions and to conduct their policy. Now, Father, as we study your word today, we pray that you would continue to make these things clear to us, challenge us with the truths of our unique spiritual life in this church age, and how we as believers can continue to advance to spiritual maturity. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as I announced in the first hour, the group that went over to Kiev has finished their first week there. They helped conduct a uh, camp this last week for kids to the age from about the age of 7 to 13. They're, they broke them down into, I think, about six groups. There were about 50 kids, and uh, they had a tremendous time, and I think that that everybody who went on the trip has decided they want to go back next year, run another camp, so that's uh, always encouraging. That's a sign that they they uh, had a tremendous uh, uh, time there as well as uh, spiritual impact on the kids that showed up. They'll be spending another week this week and uh, in being involved in other kinds of ministry over there. They'll be involved in some ministry with uh, hospital ministry and some other kinds of things to give them a little exposure to the different types of activities that missionaries are involved in. So we need to continue to pray for them, and then they'll return uh, next Saturday. Well, this morning we're going to continue our study in Third John, Third John 3. Now, we've discovered what the problem is with the LCD projector, and that is that when uh, the bulb starts to go, then it starts uh, turning itself off. So I'm going to 
leave the verses up on the screen while I'm teaching. There are a lot of verses to go through in our lesson this morning, so I don't want to be without the projector, So, but I'm going to leave it on. The only reason I'd like to turn it off is because people in the audience tend to get mesmerized by what's on the screen. And if I leave it on the screen, blank looks go over everybody's face, and everybody stares at the screen, and the, nobody knows what... I'm saying, so try to avoid self-hypnosis this morning and avoid that. And that way, if it goes black, somebody can tell me that the screen's going black and I can uh, turn the machine back on. Uh, we'll stumble through until we can find a replacement bulb. Third John 3. For I rejoiced greatly, John writes, when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, Gaius. That's who he's addressing here. It's a personal letter. Just as you walk in the truth, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Now, what's interesting here is that the translators of the Greek have entered the uh, New American Standard that I believe I have up on the screen have reversed the impact of the of the Greek. Actually, you do not have an article in front of the noun truth in the first sentence in the Greek. Now, in Greek, when you have a noun uh, without the article, that doesn't mean it's indefinite like it would in English. It's not in a truth, but it emphasizes the quality or in some cases the uniqueness of the noun itself. It's emphasizing the the essence of the of the noun itself. And you don't have the noun I mean you don't have the article with the noun in verse three, but you do have the article with the noun in verse four. And the reason that a writer would mention something in one verse and then come back in the next verse and include the article with it is to show that he's talking about the same truth in verse 4 that he just mentioned previously in verse 3. And this phrase, walk in truth, shows up in verses 3 and 4 as the main emphasis of these two verses. John is saying how excited he was when brethren came, that is, when other believers came and gave him a report on what was going on with Gaius and what was going on in the church in whatever location that was. We have no idea where Gaius was. We don't have any idea what church it was. It was probably one of those churches in Asia Minor that were not too far, far removed from Ephesus. You had churches in Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, Ephesus, Colossae. All of those were very close to Ephesus where John pastored. And so apparently Gaius was either a, a, an associate of John's, maybe a pastor that he had trained, uh, in this one area, and now there were problems, or he was just a mature believer and perhaps a leader in this congregation, and they were having to deal with a particular problem in the church. Now, there I hit the... that was me. I'm not used to not turning that off. He writes, as we'll see in verses 5 through 8, to praise the congregation because of the way they are supporting missionaries that come through, traveling missionaries that come through the area and the way they are taking care of them logistically. 
But the problem that he's addressing is a problem in verses 9 through 12, which is a problem with the pastor or one of the leaders in the church, and probably the man who became the pastor, Diotrephes, because he loves to have the preeminence among them. See, this is always a problem with certain pastors. One of the greatest problems that pastors run into, the greatest threat to a pastor, is arrogance. Pastors get up and they handle the Word of God, and they're told all kinds of things and given all sorts of compliments from people. And when pastors lose humility and start taking all of that very seriously, they begin to think that they have a corner on the truth and that they are God's gift to the church. Now, this sword cuts both ways because there are congregations that fall in love with their pastor, and that's not a problem, but they begin to think that their pastor has a corner on truth. And so that pastor suddenly becomes the benchmark for all truth, and no pastor has the gift of infallibility or inerrancy. That's not what the filling of the Holy Spirit is all about. The filling of the Spirit in relationship to a pastor teaching guides and directs the pastor in his study of the Word, but it is not an ex-cathedra infallibility like the Pope has or claims to have. The, a pastor is going to study, and he's going to study hard. He should study hard, but he can still make mistakes. And no pastor has the time or the energy to become an expert in every area of biblical truth. There is just so much here. And even after uh, 30 or 40 or 50 years of studying the Word, a pastor is only beginning to scratch the surface of what can be learned and understood in the Word. He may have a good framework, but that does not mean that there aren't many details that still need to be adjusted and modified. And what has happened historically in churches is that you have certain pastors who think they are God's gift to the church, and you have certain churches who think that a certain pastor or theologian is God's gift to the church age, and so they begin to emphasize that man's teaching over everybody else's teaching as if nobody else has, has any understanding of the scriptures. And what always happens is that that man's theology begins to be solidified or calcified, and so there can't be any change, any development, any refinement or understanding. This is exactly what has happened to Reformed theology. Reformed theology came along. It's the theology of, of primarily John Calvin and, um, and uh, Zwingli and Oculampadius and some of the other Swiss reformers that came along in the early part of the 15th century. Same thing happens with Luther and Lutheran theology, is that you have a great man who's a pioneer and a groundbreaker in many areas. And when you look at what Calvin did, you understand these guys in the context of what was available to them and realize how much they, how large a step forward they took out of that Roman Catholic mire that they were born into. And it's, it's amazing. But there were many areas of theology that these men never addressed. For example, in eschatology, uh, both Luther and Calvin never had the time, neither did their immediate followers, to study prophecy. They were too busy fighting for their lives in the area of salvation and just trying to understand the basic dynamics of justification by faith alone. But by the end of the 16th century, 
their followers were already taking everything that they had taught and they were solidifying it into various creeds. And even today you will find if you're interacting with a, a Lutheran theologian on some point of eschatology, let's say, and you want to talk about premillennialism, they'll say, well, what did Luther say about that? And if you're talking to a Reformed theologian, they'll say, well, what did Calvin say about that? As if they had the final word on every area of theology. And that's the, the flip side of the, of the Diotrephes problem. His problem was he loved to be in the spotlight and wanted to uh, get all of the approbation from the congregation. And that's why congregations need to be careful about the approbation that they give to pastors is because you always find pastors who begin to live off of that uh, approbation and off of all the attention, and before long they have an ego problem. And the congregation participates in that by giving them that preeminence. And the next thing you know, you've got somebody, you know, and we've done that in dispensationalism, whether it's uh, John Nelson Darby or whether it's uh, Schofield or whether it's Chafer. Uh, there are great men who have uh, given tremendous doctrine to the church, but there will be great men in the future who stand on the shoulders of those who come before them. So we have to avoid that diatrophies problem. And the issue is not the pastor. The issue is not who the teacher is, our personality. The issue is the truth. That is what John is emphasizing in this epistle. There are five times, uh, six times in this epistle where John mentions the truth. See, the issue is always doctrine. The issue is always what does the Word of God say. The issue is never what does some theological system say or, did what, or what did some theologian or pastor say, but what does the Scripture say. And so people in the pew have to learn how to think. That's part of the what a pastor should be doing is training a congregation to think with discernment so that when they, that pastor is no longer there and they hear somebody that may be good on some points, they'll be able to tune into areas where they may be weak and be able to think through the, the different positions or arguments behind a position and not just be duped by some guy who comes along and who has the right vocabulary but really doesn't have a clear grasp of doctrine. So John emphasizes truth as the key issue for Gaius. So he is excited when he hears a report from others who come and tell about the truth that is in you, Gaius, the doctrine that he has assimilated as epinosis in his soul and that he that is governing his life. And this is the last phrase. They've testified of the truth that is in you just as you walk by means of the truth. And this is how that phrase should be translated. It is not walk in the truth as if it's a spatial thing, if it's a locative. See, this is the thing with a, with a dative case. A dative case is a case in the Greek that indicates the uh, indirect object of the verb. And there are various different ways in which a, a dative case 
can be can be understood. First is in a locative sense, and the second is in an instrumental sense. And the second is in an instrumental se- sense. So an, uh, a dative case can go either, and this is the lo- can go in the locative sense, and this is the case of sphere, usually taking the sense of sphere. And an instrumental has the idea of means, by means of. So this indicates the, the means by which or the instrument by which something is accomplished. And a, a locative sense has a more passive idea to it. If I am walking in the sphere of truth, that just means I'm just living within this context of truth. Whereas walking by means of truth indicates this is that which enables one to walk. And it's very important to understand that distinction because in most translations they will take the uh, dative, which is often indicated by the Greek preposition en, and they'll just simply translate it in. Because N plus the dative can have some different ideas, as we will see. N plus the dative can have these different ideas, and it's up to the reader to be able to discern the different nuances in context. And you can only do that through a detailed study of the Word, comparing Scripture with Scripture, and analyzing various doctrines. But translators, when they translate the Scripture have a general rule, and that rule is that a translation should be at the same level of ambiguity as the original. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, in in the original Greek, it says you walk in aletheia, in aletheia. Now, that in aletheia could be taken, as I've stated, as either a locative or instrumental. The reader has to pick that up from listening to or reading the document, judging it from context. And so there's a certain level of ambiguity in the, in the original, and a translator should preserve that. It is up to the pastor teacher, because of his study of the original languages, to bring out the distinctions and to help uh, the listener understand what this should be. So if you're producing a translation that's going to be used over a wide array of people, and it's a published translation, it should preserve those ambiguities. Once you start refining that, the, interpret, the um, translator has moved from translation to interpretation, and he's beginning to put his theological understanding into the text. Now, that may be right and it may be wrong, but what we should have is English translations that are free from the theological biases of the translator. And this is a problem that you have with the NIV. In too many places, they have tried to refine those distinctions. And in some places, it's okay. And in other places, it's not. It's not consistent because, as I've said before, the NIV was translated by committee. And one committee might have handled 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians. Another committee might have handled another uh, epistle. And they might have had, one committee might have gone one way 
and translating a phrase and another committee gone the other direction translating a phrase and you get this this inconsistency and that's because they that men of different theological persuasions dominated the different different uh, translation committees so it's the job of the pastor teacher to come in study the original language and give you a clarified or amplified translation that is more precise so what we have here is John saying I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk by means of truth so twice he makes this statement walking by means of truth. So that means that we have to uh, do two things here. First, we have to understand the doctrine of walking as it is developed in the Scripture by comparing Scripture with Scripture, and then we classify and categorize all of that data. And then we have to look at the concept of truth. Now, remember Jesus prayed to the Father in his high priestly prayer in John 17, Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. So there we have the same kind of instrumental concept. We are sanctified, that is, set apart in our spiritual growth by means of the truth. And then the truth is then defined in the next verse as his word. So the word then is clearly one of the means by which God matures a believer. So we have to ask the question, how does that take place? What are the mechanics of that maturation? And we will come to that uh, a little bit this morning and more next time. It's amazing how many Christians don't understand this process. So we will have to take some time to understand it. And even many Christians in doctrinal churches don't understand it because they think that if you emphasize the word too much, it slips into a form of legalism. And I'll address that a little bit as we go along this morning. So let's start off with the doctrine of walking. And the first point has to do with understanding the words for walking. There are four different words for walking used in the Greek New Testament. The first word is the word peripateo. Peripateo. Uh, that is used literally of the forward step-by-step motion as someone propels themselves forward. That's the literal sense. The figurative meaning, that is the metaphorical meaning, has to do with how one lives one's life, how someone conducts himself, or how he behaves. It is a metaphor for how you live your life. So the term peripateo, in fact, all of these terms for walking, all are used metaphorically to describe how you conduct yourself in life, how you live your life, the principles by which you govern your life, how you think, how you live your life overtly. When you think about walking itself as a physical activity, it's one of the best forms of exercise. In fact, if you go out and you walk on a regular basis, you will exercise more muscles in your body than any other form of exercise. It develops your circulation. It will improve your breathing and your uh, blood pressure. It supports the regular elimination of waste, and it strengthens the heart. Now, from all of those factors, we can derive some analogies to the spiritual life. 
in the spiritual life, as you walk, you work all the muscles of the spiritual life, that is, all of the stress busters. So the concept of walking is going to relate to every one of the stress busters from the uh, confession of sin, walking, or the, the filling of the Spirit and walking by the Spirit, Faith threats, drill, grace orientation, doctrinal orientation, personal sense of your eternal destiny, personal love for God the Father, impersonal love for all mankind, occupation with Christ, and inner happiness. All of these will be exercised as you walk on a regular basis in your spiritual life. Furthermore, as you walk, you will increase the circulation of doctrine in the mentality of your soul so that it becomes second nature to you to think in terms of divine viewpoint and think in terms of what the Bible says about particular situations. It will improve the inhale and exhale of doctrine. The more you walk uh, biblically, and we'll see all the dynamics of walking eventually, the more you walk, the more it will uh, enable you to learn, understand, and assimilate doctrine in your soul. Furthermore, it will help you eliminate the waste of human viewpoint that is accumulated in your soul and is uh, spiritually constipating your life. So you have to learn how to walk spiritually so that you can get rid of all of that human viewpoint that, that clogs everything up. And furthermore, as you walk... It strengthens the soul, just as physical walking strengthens the musculature of your body. So walking by the Spirit, walking in truth, walking uh, in love, all the attributes of walking strengthen the soul and build that soul, soul fortress which protects and defends the soul. So the first word is peripateo, which means to go forward in a step-by-step motion. Second word we have is stoikeo. Stoikeo is used in Galatians 5.26 to refer to walking in a straight line. And it refers to uh, metaphorically to marching in step, to marching in the ranks, to walk in agreement with, or to walk forward in an orderly manner. It has the idea of following a set path. So that as we studied years ago in Galatians 5.16 and 26, Galatians 5.16 emphasizes that step-by-step motion forward, and then Paul concludes by using stoicheo, indicating that this is walking according to a set path, a straight line, and that straight line is set down by the objective revelation of God's Word. This is the word that is used for advancing in relation to the mandates given in the Word of God under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Then the third word that is used in the scripture for walking is orthopedeo. Orthopedeo, which means to walk, uh, walk straight, to walk in a straight path. It's used in Galatians 2.14 to refer to a course of conduct, how one lives one's life, walking according to the straight path of God's revelation. And then a more general word that is used is the verb poiruo, which means to walk, to proceed. It can mean to travel, uh, going about your business. It can mean to live the life. So those four words all uh, can be translated walking, and each one brings out a slightly different emphasis and dynamic in, in walking. 
So those are the basic words that are used. And point number two, we learn that walking is a crucial term used to describe the characteristics of a believer's life. It's a crucial term used to describe the believer's life, and the overall mandate for walking is to walk worthy. The reason I say this is the overall mandate and general mandate is because it's repeated three times in the Scripture. Uh, in Ephesians 4.1, Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And again in Colossians 1.10, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And then 1 Thessalonians 2.12, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So what does Paul mean by the term walking worthy? This doesn't mean walking to gain God's approval or God's approbation. That is legalism. Let me say a word here that many people get confused as to what legalism is. And I got an email from a young pastor this last week, and, and he's dealing with a problem that you run into now and again in doctrinal churches, that people have picked up the idea that legalism is emphasizing a mandate, a command, and therefore emphasizing obedience. See, Obedience to the word is not really an option. It is a command of Scripture to obey the word. The problem is that some people want to say that, that by obeying the word, you get the blessing and approval of God. And that's not true. That's legalism. Legalism is the idea that anything we say or do is done to gain the approval or blessing of God. We get the blessing and approval of God solely on the basis of the perfect righteousness of Christ, which is imputed to us at the instant of salvation. All blessing, all, all the rewards, not all the rewards, but everything that God gives us is based not on what we do, but it's based on the possession of Christ's righteousness. We obey him in order to grow and advance spiritually. It doesn't have anything to do with gaining favor from God or gaining blessing from God. We, want, we obey him in order to grow spiritually, but it's not simple obedience. See, simple obedience by simple excuse me, by simple obedience, I don't mean just doing what the Scripture says to do in a moral sense. There are all kinds of people who can do what the Scripture says in a moral sense. They can avoid committing certain overt sins and certain mental attitude sins, perhaps, but that is not the spiritual life. The spiritual life must be conducted under the filling of the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, and obedience must be done in uh, the framework of walking by the Spirit, and the filling of the Spirit. And that is the second overall command. The primary overall command is walking worthy of, the, of God. And then we'll see that the secondary issue is walking by means of God the Holy Spirit. So this term walking is used in a broad general sense to refer to uh, that our life should reflect God's grace. We are not trying to gain worth before God, but he has done so much for us that we want to reflect his grace by, the, by living a life that is in obedience to him. 
If we live a life that is disobedient to Him, there will be divine discipline. There will be a loss of certain blessings that will not be distributed to us, and we will not grow and advance in the spiritual life. So it's clear that disobedient living brings negative consequences. So I don't understand uh, why people get the idea that, that obedience is legalism. Obedience is only legalism in a certain context, but as Scripture articulates many times, and Jesus said, you, uh, we demonstrate our love for him by keeping his commandments, and that's obedience. Now, walking in Scripture, walking in the Scripture is classified in four different or three different ways. Three different ways we have the word walk, and each is defined by use with a different participle. I mean, excuse me, a different preposition. For example, first of all, we have walking where the dative is a dative of sphere or location, where we walk in a sphere or realm. Walking in, the, in a sphere or realm. For example, Romans 13.13. 13. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. And the word there translated behave properly in the New American Standard is our word peripateo. Peripateo, walking uh, in the realm of that which is proper. So it's in a certain sphere. In uh, Romans 13, 14, it goes on to say that we're to walk in the day. Or, excuse me, that, that's here in Romans 13, 13, we're to walk in the day. There goes the light. I'll have to give it a minute before it comes back on. I think it's gone. Okay, you're just going to have to ride with the flow. No overhead for all these verses. Romans 13, 13, let us behave, that is, let us walk in the day. That is, walking in a sphere or realm. It's also called in the light in Ephesians 5, 8. Ephesians 5, 8 says, For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, walk in the light. This is walking in the sphere or realm of the light. It's also described that way in 1 John 1, 6 and 7. If we walk, if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, this is carnality, walk in the sphere of darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So here we are to walk in the sphere of the light. We do not walk by means of the light per se, but walk in the sphere of light, that is, in the sphere of the illumination, which comes from the Holy Spirit in conjunction with the Word of God. We are to walk in the newness of life, Romans 6, 4. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead 
through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. See, if you look at Romans 6, 4, it doesn't give you much of an option for disobedience. We have been buried with him for a purpose. In order that, for the purpose that, as Christ was raised from the dead, so we too might walk in newness of life. That is the purpose. We are to walk in newness of life. That can only happen if we're walking by means of God the Holy Spirit. Colossians 2.6 picks up this same idea and says, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so also walk in Him. See, walking in Him is the idea of sphere. How did you receive Christ? You received Christ by faith alone in Christ alone. And so uh, walking in Him is also a walk by means of faith, that is, trusting in Him and His commandments and in what has been revealed in Scripture. Now, a third category of walking in a sphere is emphasized in Ephesians 5.2. There we are to walk in love, just as Christ also loved you. And we have studied that, the uh, uh, impersonal love of Christ for everyone, as well as the, uh, which is demonstrated at the cross, that Christ died on the cross as a substitute for us. That is the model for love for us. We are to walk in love. Second John 1 6, this is love that we walk according to his commandments. See, walking according to his commandments is Obeying his commandments, that's certainly not legalism. This is not some Old Testament idea of keeping the law. It is the idea of doing what uh, the Scripture says to do. Every imperative mood of the New Testament emphasizes obedience, that it is only when we are obeying the Scripture and walking by means of the Holy Spirit that we can grow and mature as believers. John says at the end of Second uh, John 1, 6, This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. A fourth sphere is in good works. Ephesians 2.10 We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And there you have the phrase ace plus the accusative, which indicates purpose. Why were you created in Christ Jesus as a new creature? For good works, for the purpose of divine good. This isn't human good, which would be the result of morality uh, according to the flesh, but this is divine good from the Holy Spirit. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, that is, in the sphere of these uh, good works. Uh, fifth, we're to walk in the sphere of wisdom. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time, Colossians 4, 5. Now, there's a couple of negatives that we should keep in mind. For example, in Ephesians 4, 17, we're told, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. That is, do not walk or live your life in the sphere of the emptiness of 
the thinking, pagan thinking, human viewpoint thinking that characterizes the Gentiles. Another negative in 2 Corinthians 4.2, but we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, that is, in the realm of panorgia, deceitful cunning. Uh, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So we are not to walk in craftiness. So these are the the spheres, the realm in which our life is to be lived, and then not in the emptiness of minds, not in uh, craftiness, 2 Corinthians 4.2. Then... We have another phrase that's used, and that's the one I've mentioned earlier, which is the phrase we have in 3 John 3 and 4, and that is the Greek phrase, in plus the dative of means. We are to walk by means of certain things. So we're told in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, that we walk by means of faith. We walk by means of faith, not by sight. Sight refers to all of the human viewpoint systems of knowledge, walking by empiricism, walking by rationalism, where we can somehow, on the basis of our human viewpoint frame of reference, uh, either uh, on the basis of empiricism or rationalism, come up with truth. That our experience then becomes more real to us than what the Word of God says. But what the Word of God says is when you walk by faith, The Word of God itself is more real to you than your experience. It's more real to you than your emotions when you're depressed, when you're despondent, when you're discouraged. The Word of God is more real to you than what certain uh, empirical evidence may appear to suggest in terms of uh, evolution. They simply interpreted that data a a certain way. It doesn't, as we've seen in our study on Wednesday night, It doesn't have to be interpreted that way. They're walking by faith also. Faith is the ultimately undergirds every every system of perception. So this is walking by faith, not faith in faith, but faith in the revelation of God's Word. So we understand that by the Holy Spirit. This is the second category of means. We walk by means of the Holy Spirit, Galatians 5.16 and Galatians 5.25, if we live by means of the Spirit, that's regeneration, let us also walk by means of the Spirit, and that is our day-to-day progress in the spiritual life. And then the third means that's given is emphasized both in Second John 6 and Third John 3 and 4. Second John 6 states, this is love that we walk according to his commandments, This is the commandment that you've heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it, that is, in the commandment, the Word of God. And then 3 John 3 and 4, the the Word of God is described as truth in this passage, that we are to walk in the truth, that is, by means of the truth, both in verse 3 and then verse 4, walk by means of the truth. So we have three things that link together in terms of means. We walk by means of faith, we walk by means of the Holy Spirit, and we walk by means of truth. Now, if I were going to diagram this up here on the overhead, we'll do it this way. Here at the top, we'll do it like a sort of like a triangle, 
at the top, we'll put faith. Faith is the act of trusting something. Excuse me. At the top of the diagram, we have the walk by means of the Holy Spirit. Walk by means of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit is going to focus us on two things. First of all, we have faith, which is the act of trusting something. Faith always has an object. Now, the Christian life is not this sort of psychological, optimistic uh, panacea that is popular today of faith in faith. It is faith in something that is objective and something that has been revealed, and that is the objective, absolute truth of God's Word. So God the Holy Spirit, when we are walking by the Holy Spirit, that is the action, walking by means of the Holy Spirit, that is the action uh, related to the filling of the Holy Spirit. That's our day-to-day, moment-by-moment dependence on God the Holy Spirit. Within that framework, we are walking by faith, which is trusting something, and what we are trusting is the truth of God's Word. So these three elements work together. You don't have one without the other. You're not just walking by the Spirit and not needing truth. The Holy Spirit isn't speaking to you today in terms of revelation of truth. This is a problem that you have with uh, many different people who have bought into some form of mysticism, whether it is... uh, the, the mysticism of Greek Orthodox, Greek Orthodoxy, whether it's the mysticism of Roman Catholicism or whether it's the mysticism in, in Pentecostalism, there are many different groups that have subtle forms of mysticism and they think that somehow God is communicating something to them even if it's a, just a certain feeling or impression. That is not what the Word of God says. Faith is always in truth. Truth is something that is expressed propositionally in the Word of God. So the N plus the dative indicates the means. Then we come to a third phrase that we have in in the Greek, which uses a different uh, preposition, and that is the preposition kata, K-A-T-A, plus the accusative means according to a norm or standard, that we are to walk according to a norm or a standard. Once again, this brings in the idea of of obedience to something, walking according to a norm or a standard. Now, this is used in two key verses. First of all, in Romans 8.4, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, that is the standard of the sin nature and human viewpoint thinking, but according to the Spirit. So we are to walk according to a certain standard, and that's the standard revealed by God the Holy Spirit and according to the power of the Holy Spirit. And then Romans 14:15, we are to walk according to uh, love. Yet, if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking literally according to love. That is the standard, to walk according to a certain norm or standard, to love one another as Christ loved the church. It's poorly translated walking in love. It is actually walking according to love. 
Now, there are certain negatives associated with this, uh, this uh, phraseology as well. We are not to walk according to the norms and standards of the sin nature. This is we've just seen in Romans 8.4, not according to the flesh. This is further described through this little different uh, vocabulary where Paul talks about not walking uh, like uh, mere men or according to uh, human behavior, not carnality in 1 Corinthians 3, 3. Uh, 1 Timothy 3, 6 says, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you. This is according to uh, a certain standard of orderly uh, behavior. And Ephesians 2, 2 in which you once walked according to the course of this world. See, this is describing the uh, lifestyle of the unbeliever. He lives his life according to a certain standard, and that is the course of this world, human viewpoint thinking, which is according to the standard of the prince of the power of the year. Human viewpoint thinking is tantamount to the thinking of Satan, and it's quite, it is uh, uh, evil. According to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the year, the spirit who now works in the son's of disobedience. So all of this is to show the different ways in which walking is modified in the Scripture. Walking in a certain sphere, walking by means of faith, the Holy Spirit and truth, and then walking according to a certain norm or standard. That was all point two. Point three. In Galatians 5.16... Walking by means of the Spirit is contrasted with walking by means of the flesh. If you walk by means of the Spirit, you will not bring to completion the work of the flesh. And so we see from that passage that in your life, you're only living in one of two categories. You're either walking, living your life according to the sin nature, or you're living your life according to the Holy Spirit. You're walking by means of the Spirit or by means of the sin nature. There's no in-between. It is either one or the other. And even if you're living a life of morality, religious activity, then it can still be carnality and you're just walking like mere men at 1 Corinthians 3.3. Point number four, I want to address the basis for the believer's walk. The basis for this walk is in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? See, this addresses that issue of disobedience again. That as a believer, the goal is not to sin. Now, that's not legalism. Legalism would be doing that to try to gain the favor of God. The purpose in this is so that we can log maximum time in fellowship so that we can grow and advance in the spiritual life. Then Paul says in verse 3, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? We've been identified into his death. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. So there's a purpose for salvation, and that is to walk in this new life. And this 
when peripateo is used in this verse, it's an aorist active subjunctive. Subjunctive is the mood of potentiality. And this is used to express the contingency of the believer's volition. You may or may not walk. That's your choice. You may not walk in newness of life, in which case you will go through divine discipline and loss of rewards and some contingent blessings in time. So we see from this that the basis for the Christian walk is our identification with Christ's death, and that is also what got us, what provided for us his righteousness, the imputation of his righteousness. So it's not legalism to say that you need to walk in newness of life. It is the result of grace that God has done everything for us through Christ Jesus. Another key verse, point number five, another key verse is to walk as a child of light. This is in Ephesians 5.8. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. See, that's that positional truth idea again. We are in the position of light. Therefore, walk as children of light. This is to characterize our life. We are to walk as children of life. This is a present active imperative, meaning this is to be the general characteristic or standard operating procedure for living our life. And then in verse 9, Ephesians 5, 9, for the fruit of the light, and then we've seen that's the New American Standard, but the majority text has spirit there, which I think is a superior reading. For the fruit of the spirit consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. You don't get the fruit of the Spirit unless you're walking in the light. So why do you walk in the light? To get favor from God? No, but to grow and advance in the spiritual in the spiritual life. Now, light in Scripture represents absolute perfection. It reflects all that uh, God is in his absolute righteousness and walking in a manner that is consistent with that. For example, 1 Corinthians, I mean, 1 Timothy 16 says about God that he alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. And again, 1 John 1 5 says that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So at salvation, we positionally become the sons of light. This is a description of our basic character. We now have positional righteousness. Uh, John 12.36 says, While you have the light, believe in the light, in order that you may become sons of light. That's what happens at salvation. And at salvation, we're transferred positionally into light. 1 Peter 2.9 But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And Acts 26.18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God. So we are transferred from the dominion of darkness to the dominion of light at salvation. So that our new position in Christ means that we are children of light and we are to live as children of light. In fact, Romans 13:12 says, The night is almost gone, the day is at hand. Let us therefore lay aside, lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on 
the armor of light. So this is our new position in Christ. Now we come to point number point number six. Point number six. Point number five, just by way of review. Point number five that is that we are to walk as a child of light because we are already in the light. That was Ephesians 5, 8. Whenever we sin, we go into darkness and we recover through 1 John 1, 9, which is something that we have studied uh, many, many times, and we understand that principle. Then we come to the sixth point. The precedence for walking in the light is found in 1 John 2, 6. In 1 John 2, 6, this gives us the precedent for walking in the light. And there in 1 John 2, 6, we read, He who says he abides in him, that is fellowship with Christ, ought himself also to walk just as he walked. The precedent is Jesus Christ. He is light. He walked in light. He said, I am the light of the world. We are to walk in the same manner as he walked. That is the precedence for the Christian life. Then in point number seven, we learn that walking leads to living in the sphere of the love triplex, personal love for God the Father, impersonal love for all mankind, and occupation with Christ. If we continue to walk in the Holy Spirit, walk by faith, and walk according and walk by means of the truth, then we will advance to spiritual maturity. And that brings us to point number number eight, that the Christian walk is based on the faith rest drill. This is why you move from, in the, in the understanding of the stress busters, from confession of sin, because that puts us into right relationship with God and right relationship with the Holy Spirit, to the second stress buster, which is the filling of the Holy Spirit and walking by means of the Holy Spirit, to the next step, which is the faith rest drill, walking by means of truth. Faith, the faith rest drill is not faith in faith, it's faith in truth, Second Corinthians five seven states that we walk by faith and not by sight. We are to uh, in the, walk in the same manner as that which we received Christ, which is by faith. So that brings us to the ninth point, our conclusion, and that is that three means work together, and these three means that work together are the foundation for understanding how to live the Christian life or how to walk the Christian walk. It is under the filling of the Holy Spirit. It is a moment-by-moment dependence on the Holy Spirit. While we are walking by the Spirit, we have the action of faith, that is, trusting, relying upon what He has revealed in His Word, which is the truth. So that is how these three means clauses all work together. This is the means by which we grow and mature as believers. So this is an introduction this morning to our walking by means of the truth. Now the implementation of this starts with the faith rest drill. How do we take faith and mix that with the promises of God's word? And so next time I want to start looking at some specifics on the faith rest drill. We've got a good introduction to the importance of walking by truth this morning. And what I want to do is go into some of the promises uh, 
that we claim, promises that you use in the faith rest drill, promises that I repeat frequently on uh, Sunday mornings before our various services and help you to understand how you apply that in terms of a day-to-day walk. You know, I find that people get confused. Some people just sort of repeat those verses over and over and over again like it's some Hindu mantra. Other people just sort of hypnotize themselves by those promises. That's not how you do it. You don't just go into some pattern of self-hypnosis by claiming a promise till you're, and reciting it over and over again until you're blue in the face. There are definite procedures, and we'll get into that and uh, next time, and I want to go into several of these promises, into their context in the Old Testament or New Testament, see how they how they fit into that overall context and what they meant in their uh, in the historical context of their original uh, revelation. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning and to gain this. A tremendous insight into how we live the Christian life. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. All you have to do to have eternal life is to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. You're not relying upon any religious observances, any religious activities. You're relying exclusively on what Jesus Christ did on the cross. You simply believe that he died for you and that that belief alone is sufficient for your salvation. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.